0: Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and Mayu is not with us today. However, he will be featured in the podcast. He's got me doing the preamble alone while I am sick with COVID, unfortunately. But this time around, it wasn't as bad as the first time I got it. So this is my second time getting COVID. Not fun, especially when it's right before a long weekend and I have a flip project going on. Um, What's going on with my end of things, some updates on my end is, is that, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was going through a couple of appraisals on properties I purchased by myself and with JV partners at the end of 2022. So when there was still fear in the markets, one of the appraisals came back short of what our expectation was because that appraiser was a little bit incompetent. They were comparing it against properties in a far inferior neighborhood. And again, single family homes, if you remember me kind of uh, ranting about that. However, we finally were able to get a new appraiser in there and we got the value we were looking for. So that's going to be a full burr plus a little bit of extra money pulled out as well. So that one worked out beautifully. We we're able to negotiate make a possession on that deal, which is how we got the turnaround really quick. And then we had another three unit that was in Windsor. Already give an update on that one, but just to refresh everyone's memory, picked that one up for 510, negotiated cash for keys and uh, was able to get a reappraised at 870. So that one were in the final steps of refinancing the cash out, getting really quick timeline, less than six months. And then the last project, or there's two more projects. One of them was a the fourplex. I think I mentioned that one already. Did cash for keys and ended up just selling it privately and, and taking out profits. Held back a VTB for the buyer of that property because the property was vacant when they purchased it. It was harder to get financing, especially on the commercial side of things. So I held back a VTB. And uh, they were finally able to stabilize the property and, and switch it over to traditional credit union financing, and so got the BTB paid back, got my interest happy with that. And lastly, fiveplex in Windsor, we got it appraised on the residential side, and they were comparing it against other fiveplexes that sold in far inferior neighborhoods that were not stabilized. The rent was crappy, the renovations were crappy, so we had to take it to a credit union. And then we ordered a new appraisal with the credit union, a full detailed narrative appraisal. So that cost a few thousand dollars, but was able to get the value we are looking for. So we picked that up for 620. We turned around all the units, renovated all the units and got it up to market rents and it appraised for 1.17 million. So that one is also going to be a full burr plus a couple thousand out. So maybe, I think it was when I was calculating it, it's either eighty five. To ninety five grand additional cash out, We've got to finalize the members there, but that one worked out really well. The timeline for that was six months, but we stabilized in about three and a half to four months. However, we got stuck with a crappy appraisal because the appraiser was only using comps, which shouldn't be the case with the biplex. So that's on my end with sort of the buy and and then also going through a flip project in Toronto. We'll get into that, I guess, in the next preamble when my back on because I, I feel like I'm rambling now. So we're going to go straight into the episode. Not going to keep you guys waiting anymore. We have a very special guest for you today. We have Terry Nguyen, who's got started off investing around the same time I did about four to five years ago. And he's done many amazing things in real estate from burning properties into fixing and flipping and even diving into the project management side of construction. But then most recently, he decided to jump into the Airbnb arbitrage business. Full-time, a scaling in the U.S. over 20 units in a short period of time. We're going to go over sort of Terry's mindset, trying all of these different strategies and why he settled down with the hospitality business to scale his growth in. And also, we're going to get into common myths and misconceptions about real estate investing in general. This episode is a must-listen for you investors out there. There's tons of golden nuggets. Hope you guys enjoy. And if you do enjoy this podcast, Make sure to leave us a five-star review, comment, share it with a friend, and let's jump straight into it. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Terry from Terra Costa Homes. Terry, how's it going, my man? It's going well. It's going well. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing good, Terry. Uh, we've all known each other for a while, but for our audience that maybe doesn't know you, give a quick background on who you are, what you do, and your life story. <laughs>
2: Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I've known you and Austin. I think we all got started in the real estate game back in 2018, 2019. And we all connected in a super small network of real estate investors in Ontario. And so that's how we got to know each other. In my background before jumping into real estate, I was an electrician for about 4 or 5 years. And I worked for commercial outfits and residential outfits. And we did everything from high-rise condos. We did some work down at I believe it was one King Street or one Young Street. So we've done a bunch of high-rise condos. as projects I've been a part of, Amazon warehouses, Shoppers Drug Mart. If anyone ever goes to the one at Bloor and Spadina, I was there for a year of my life doing all the electrical in there. So yeah, that's uh, the background I come from. And then I started going into active real estate investing with buying as the first strategy that we wanted to employ. And yeah, that was back March, 2019. And the first deal I actually bought with a partner I met on Instagram. And we bought that property in Hamilton, sight unseen. That was my first real estate deal. And then from there, from 2019 to 2022, I've either burned or flipped eight to 10 properties, give or take, and still hold a couple uh, long-term rentals. And now I am building out a uh, hospitality company, home Homestakes.
0: I think there's going to be well, a lot to unpack. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't know that. I feel like uh, probably haven't seen you in a while today. So I didn't yeah. know you were up until I should, but that's pretty interesting. So the flipping journey, actually, if you know what, way before that, you just randomly bought your first property with someone you connected on Instagram. Like tell me, I'm, I'm just curious about what led up to that. Cause I think a lot of our guests, either you have capital, you don't, you, you have a good deal. You don't have a partner, various like whatever. Right. So take us back to kind of that very first one, just more so on, how you found a partner, how you guys bought it together, stuff like that.
2: Yeah, for sure. So his name is Josh Doyle. I'm sure there's a lot of real estate investors uh, that know him Yeah, yeah, and yeah. know him <laughs> in, the ne- in the network, right? So um, yeah, me and Josh, uh, we actually met on Instagram and a year prior to us doing our first deal together, we both ran e-commerce businesses. So he was doing e-commerce and so was I, and that's how we kind of connected. Our pages came across each other and we started DMing each other. And then we realized that we had a lot of similar goals in mind. And real estate investing was one of those goals. So we start talking and over the year, we develop our relationship together. And then we're like, hey, you know what? We have some capital. Why don't we partner up on something and figure out this real estate investing strategy together? So that's the long and short of it. That's how we got started. And that's how we partnered up on the first year.
1: Awesome. Your first venture wasn't even real estate. It was really e-commerce. And like, was this like an Amazon store or...
2: Yeah. So it was an eBay store. So in 2017, you guys, Indeed. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in 2017, um, Gary V was doing his 2017 flip challenge, hashtag 2017 flip challenge. And so I was like, okay, let me, let me try that out. It's like, you know, going to garage sales. If anyone follows Gary V still posts this stuff, going to garage sales, thrift stores, buying stuff on a cheap and then just reselling them. So this was when I was still an electrical apprentice. I was a second or third year apprentice. And I went on the weekends, went to garage sales, and I was consistently making about net like four to five thousand USD a month. Yeah, part time doing that.
1: Yeah, so That's it's legit. Good. Not but what uh, I was yeah. expecting to hear. It. Yeah, yeah right? so <laughs> I but, like a couple hundred.
2: <laughs> no, no, a couple thousand USD as well at that time. And I think at that time it was like one point four or one point five or something. It's pretty high. But keep in mind that that like. How Gary Vee and how we see things on social media is obviously one way to paint a picture. But it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And it really is like a side business because you have to actually physically go out and get the inventory. You have to take the pictures, list the items, ship the items, deal with returns, set up your store, get traffic. So that's what I did with e-commerce. Yeah.
1: You think the model still works?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. You can even do it... I guess a little bit easier, you could do online uh, arbitrage, which is like just buying stuff from auction online. I did that as well during my eBay days. And I saw I would just buy stuff in bulk or on cheaper and then just resell them on eBay.
1: You know, it's kind of crazy. I know someone that buys stuff from HomeSense and then she goes on Facebook marketplace. And resells it at like a premium. I'm just like, what the fuck? So it's all just like really good staging and like finding the right person that needs the right thing that doesn't want to go to the store. To your point that you mentioned, it
0: it is really a side hustle. You have to be extremely active in that business. And you can train people, sure, but as it's not like a complicated skill set. So as soon as you train someone and they know how to do it, they really don't have the value in partnering with someone else if they're going to be doing all the active work, right, and consistency of income. But it's obviously a great sort of way to, to, to. I guess it's the mindset really, like you had the entrepreneurial mindset to start with, you went on that grind and that hustle, and then you pivoted towards something uh, where I guess it was more lucrative, right? Real estate investing. I kind of want to chat about the investing side of things. So you're obviously a full-time electrician and then started breaking into real estate. Right now, just so the audience knows, you're not electrician anymore. Well, you still are, but you don't practice anymore, right? So you're in real estate and hospitality full-time, was that always the game plan for you to transition out of being an electrician? And if so, what was the path that you took? Cause I know that you did some flipping, you were a general contractor. Can you kind of walk me through your thought process of the different things you were trying out to build those active income streams?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I think just replacing my full-time income as an electrician was top of mind for me. And to do that, um, I didn't jump into full-time real estate in the right away. It took me about six to seven months before I felt comfortable, and it does take a while to kind of get over that mindset. But just working towards making sure that projects were profitable and that you know I had some cash reserves to kind of live off of, just in case things kind of didn't go as planned, helped me figure out which income streams will work best for me to replace my full-time income as an electrician.
0: And you were doing some flipping that. Generally, makes a lot of sense. You're an electrician. You know tradespeople. Mm-hmm. You can put in the sweat equity. Almost, I would imagine, people in your position. And we're going to get into the hospitality thing soon. But people with your skill set typically tend to double down on using the unique skills that you have. Because I can just think of like four or five people off the top of my head in the investment community that have trades experience. And one, they fix and flip themselves. Two, they own a construction company. It seems like you were going down that path, but you pivoted away from it. Could you walk me through some of your experiences with that and why you made that leap of faith into hospitality?
2: Yeah, for sure. So going down that path, definitely like, you know, being in the construction industry for for the amount of years that I was in and having skill sets as an electrician and trying to figure out my way as a general contractor, I definitely did lean in towards doing these like through my company or by myself. To quote unquote save money. But at the end of the day, I realized I wasn't saving money. I was actually paying myself negative dollars to run these projects. And I would still pay myself through, as an electrician, through my electric company. So that kind of helped. But for me to try to figure out plumbing, drywalling, and all these other things, I'm a very capable person and I have all the tools and all the necessary requirements for that. But I realized that's just not the best way to spend my time. Like, sure, I could probably figure out how to tile a bathroom floor a lot quicker than maybe the average person. But it's just not the best use of my time. And then I start to realize, hey, you know what? It's better to just outsource this to the professionals and let them deal with it. So then I can kind of focus on cash flow, essentially. Because as you guys know, with flips and burrs, you're pretty much broke until you get that big check at the end of the day. And that check become come anywhere like six, 12 months later. So in between there, you know, making sure that you have savings or even like lines of credits and credit cards to kind of help you push through. If you're running like really leverage, that wasn't a life that I kind of wanted to live anymore. And so that's why I kind of transitions into, not kind of, but that's why I did transition into the hospitality and travel accommodation industry and building this business setup. So.
1: That's actually so true. And the birds, I think, are the work, right? Because the birds, you don't really get out too much more capital than what you put in but even with flips because we always associate like flipping is like an active income stream and it is and you get back that equity that you build but you are definitely like broke for like 80% of the year and you're balling for like 20% of the year (laughs) like it's fucked right but so when you went down the flip route did you kind of try to do flips that were I might have missed this like closer to home then you could do a lot more of the work yourself on or what was your strategy getting into flips did you take on like heavier like renovations than most other people would do. I'm just curious there.
2: Yeah, for sure. So for the flipping aspect, definitely closer to home and areas that I understood. So our first flip was, um, it was an EJAX. And I purchased, actually, I I partnered up with that as well. So our flipping company, we have our entire corporation just for the flipping because of tax reasons with active business income, it's better to do that way. I'm sure you guys can understand. And if the audience doesn't understand that, you guys should Google it and figure out why that's better. But anyways, so That flipping corporation, I was actually partnered with someone else on that as well. And we started with Ajax. And then it was good to be able to have my skill set and to have a network of handy people and trades to go in and do projects like that. And I felt more comfortable because it was closer to home. And then the second one was a deal I actually bought off of Austin, one in Etobicoke. And we flipped that one. And then our third one was in Burlington off another wholesaler. And those are all the flips that we did inside that corporation. So are yeah. you guys
1: taking on private money here or like, how are you guys going about taking down these deals? Cause these aren't small purchases. Like this is our expensive are like, market. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So th- this is all private money either. Like even with the down payments, some of them we didn't have money ourselves. We would raise that money through our friends and family. And obviously we would offer them a good return. But that would be on the promissory note. And this is something that not a lot of people could do only because there has to be some sort of track record for someone to lend you, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a down payment in a property like this. And then from there, yes, we would get a private mortgage to do the mortgage. And then we would have either lines of credits or personal funds to do the renovations or even raise funds through private investors to do renovations. And to follow up on that other question about what types of renovations we do, we tend to do like larger scale renovations, quote unquote, you know, it's all about perspective, but for us, it was larger scale. So that uh, first property of Ajax, we actually put in a basement suite. And then redid the kitchen on the main floor and did all the flooring and paint and all that good stuff. The one in Etobicoke from Austin, same thing. We redid the basement suite. So we had two suites. So it's more marketable. The third one in Burlington, that one was a single family house flip, But we gutted that place. There was a lot of like cat piss everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was really bad. And we had to soak that place for like a week and just kind of let it air out. But then we pretty much got it the place and then put it back together. So those are the type of renovations. And then on the bird side, same thing. It'd be like from a single family to a duplex, full gut, single family to a triplex, full gut. And when I'm saying full gut, like down to the studs, got to reframe stuff, got to insulate, have to drywall, do electrical plumbing, HVAC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And you know what? Like the more I've been holding my properties, the more I realized how important it is to do things right the first time. Because I'm not going to lie, like with some of the properties that Mayan, I'm sure you can agree with this. Some of the properties we own, it's like, let's just paint floor. We'll deal
1: with shit as it comes up. Just enough to satisfy the appraiser, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's like, oh, okay, like there are more issues that are popping up than we would like, right? So with vinyl, for example, we used to go with the absolute cheapest one that we can get. It looks nice, sure, but it starts buckling in a year and we're going to have to end up replacing it anyways, right? Just go like a little bit higher quality, do things right the first time, especially. If you're gonna hold it for the long term, you're just gonna end yeah. up you're kicking the can further down the road, right? So I like kind of the approach that, that you've been taking, and and by the way, while you're doing all of this, this is your full time sort of job, or you're still an electrician on the side too? Like, what was your active income stream?
2: So my active income stream was my savings account. Same, okay. <laughs> like going back to what we, what I talked about earlier, like doing flips and doing burrs, Like my, you mentioned you're broke eighty percent of the year, and then twenty yeah. percent when you are balling that goes straight back to paying back private investors. So you're actually not falling. So 100% of the year, you're broke. (laughs) So outside of that, I would take on projects for other investors and other clients for electrical jobs, whether I'm rewiring a triplex or doing kitchen renovation, those kind of things that kind of just help the bills move along until these books came through. But to answer your question about full-time... So I was full-time as an active investor and full-time kind of as an electrician at that time. Um, And I went full-time in August of 2019. So I've been full-time working through my own company since then.
0: Awesome. And just so people know, each one of those flips were profitable uh, from what I remember at the end of the day, especially the first one that was filed. You made like, was it six figures in profit with the first flip or something like that?
2: Uh, Yeah, the first flip, I think it was like 120, give or take.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then
2: the second one, yeah, it was like mid five figures. And the third one was around low six figures as well.
0: Okay. And just so this pain a picture in people's head, it's not that you were unsuccessful in flipping every flip that you touch, you made a lot of money on it, given obviously you were taking private. But regardless of you having the skill set of being an electrician, understanding trades, putting that sweat equity and getting good off market deals and having access to capital, it's still a stressful position to be in. You know, it's not like you were losing money. You were making fantastic money. But I think where people get in trouble is, is that when they, gain too much confidence, right? Because from what I remember with you guys, you were doing like one at a time, maybe two at a time, but usually you try to wrap up a project for jumping into another one where people get in trouble is when they get overconfident in their abilities and take on like five at a time. And then that's where it becomes even more scary, right? But no, I just wanted to point out, like you've been very successful in that realm, but obviously it didn't fit your lifestyle. And I can relate in a lot of ways to that too, but let's almost transition. So like you're doing flips, you're Wait, doing right, some. Right. Wait, hold on, hold on, oh, okay. I not the flips yet.
1: So how long yeah. do these projects on average take you, Terry? Right, Like when you're doing these kind of like flips in large cities with large price points, I'm just curious, what was like the general timeline from start to finish? I guess closing the property on the purchase to closing the sale.
2: Yeah. So anywhere between six to eight months, give or take. Six, so, eight months. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So for the first one, mind you, the Ajax one from close to close. I think it was seven months. And then the Etobicoke one, that one was quick. That was like four months, close to close. And then the Burlington one was, I think, six months, close to close. Yeah.
1: And sorry, did you say you're still flipping or did you stop flipping?
2: So I stopped flipping. So I'm not an yeah. electrician anymore. No general contracting. No oh, you gave a. your electrician not, license? I didn't give up my electrician license. I'm just not practicing. I'm not okay. taking on clients. So if anyone is listening and wants electrical work, you can reach out to me and I can refer you to a lot of my good friends who are electricians that have their own companies. That's not a problem. But I personally don't practice on something.
1: So I know you're not doing it. I it last year after losing 60 grand on my last flip. But I'm just curious, <laughs> what is your outlook on flipping in the current market?
2: It's tough. I was supposed to do another flip last August and I lost out on that deal as well. Just because I saw the market kind of turning and you guys speak to, you know, the interest rates and stuff, especially my youth being in that field. But it's tough right now. I mean, it's just really tough. There's just so much uncertainty, especially in the Ontario market. Specifically, where I'm talking about Ontario, it's just, there's a lot of uncertainty. And the interest rates there aren't coming down anytime soon, at least on the retail side. So it's just, it's tough. Anybody that is looking to get into flips, you are 100% making your money on the bottom. That's what I think. So just got to be, you know, cognizant there.
1: That's really good. Yeah. And it's interesting that I've seen more and more people get back into the flipping game. Maybe it just seems like that. I don't really know, but um, uh, I've lost out on a fair amount of offers. So I'm pretty sure someone's beating me at it. Right. Yeah. But it just always makes me kind of go, am I just being a little bit of a wuss here? Or so I was just curious about your opinion. I know Austin's out here flipping out. She's so awesome. What are your thoughts actually? Just. You know, just yeah. <laughs> what's going on over
0: there? What do, what do I think about it? Um, I think there's definitely more risk than there was before. I think everyone would agree with that, right? right? A lot of it is is that we are taking advantage of the market picking up again. So when I'm doing flip, I need to see a clear exit very, very quickly. And I'm trying to buy like the cheapest yeah. option, you know, first time home buyer sort of stuff. Not like mid tier, high tier stuff. Yeah, yeah like yeah. entry level stuff. Right. So it also limits my loss, right? But I'm sure we're going to get into that in the preamble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm very curious about this. Okay, so... Kind of going back and circling back to everything we talked about. You started off as an electrician, you started burring, you started flipping, you started doing GCing, you just went totally left field and now you're in the hospitality industry with think, over 20 Airbnbs that are going to be active within the next few months in in the US. Yeah, What was your mindset? Because that's totally left field from what you were doing before. Yeah, I wouldn't
2: say totally left field. There is some adjacent terminology and skill sets that are transferable from the real estate world. And I do have to add that because like, people that may want to get into the space that I'm in that don't have the real estate exposure or the business exposure may be in for a rude awakening. Because that, I can definitely tell you that that has helped me in my negotiations, in my underwriting, market research, any of that. It just makes it a lot easier for me. So why going that way? So like I was saying earlier, I was supposed to close on a flip uh, in Ontario last August and that deal didn't go through. I went firm on a deal in May and then we didn't end up closing on it and it was supposed to close August, September. So between May and August, I was like, all right, this is the only project I have on the go. Everything else is wrapped up, either being sold or being rented out and I have nothing else on the go. I really took that time to decide what am I going to do next? Am I going to continue flipping? Am I going to continue burring? Is this a lifestyle I want to continue with? And the answer was no. I didn't want to live an 80% broker of the year. I wanted some cash flow coming in. But at the same time, I also had constraints of like, I didn't want to be on the tools. I didn't want to be in the you know, construction industry anymore just because there's so many moving pieces and so many things can go wrong and there's so many people undercoming. Like, there's so many reasons, right? I had been following Aaron Bay for a while and His numbers, if anyone follows him, his numbers are quite staggering. And that kind of opened up my mind to a different perspective. From there, I started following a couple other people on social media just kind of to learn what short-term rental arbitrage is. And that's the business model that we're employing in our company. And from there, you know, just kind of following along, figuring things out. But I was from doing birds and flips, I was looking for a more steady cash flow business. That was the intent. And I actually almost purchased an existing construction bin business during that time from May to August. So, you know, That's like the cool guys that drop off about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So <laughs> it was like, you know, those guys that drop off bins on, on your job sites, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there was someone that was selling their existing company, had 70 bins, three trucks, existing book of clients and everything. The guy wanted 450 grand for the business. I ran it through my accountant and he said, this company is losing money every year. It is not worth 450 grand. It's probably worth you know 100 grand, if that. And I pitched it to me. I was like, "Hey, I'll pay you 100 grand for this book and uh, for the business." And he obviously, he said no, but I was actively looking for a cash flow heavy business. I even considered going back into flipping things online and kind of building that out. But then I just didn't want to. It, it didn't spark anything in me, right? So, yeah, seeing Aaron's journey and seeing a bunch of other people on social media just opened up my, my mindset to that. And that's how I landed where we are today.
1: By the story on the bin rentals. I was mean, I was yeah. doing a, just wrapped up a burr at a cottage and right in front of the cottage, I got this, I want to say it was like a 40 foot bin, like the biggest bin you could get. Mm-hmm. And I got them to drop it off and we filled it up and it fucking took the company four months to come and pick up this bin. As so we was just sitting there, I had to do the appraisal with this bin full of shit in front of the cottage. And they were just like, "Yo, know, like our truck broke down. We can't pick up this bin. I was looking pissed. I can't do anything with a 40 bucks bit either. So I had to like patiently wait it out. But that is a very interesting business that you brought up from like a cash flow perspective. Like it's actually yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. So going into the US, so like I know you have the real estate background. Hospitality, wouldn't you consider it like highly cyclical? Right? Like I'd almost go like the winter months, you're probably gonna be pretty dead. Recession wise, you'd probably be looking at a lot of risk, right? The summer months you'd probably kill it, right? But isn't that once again gonna be like a highly cyclical like business?
2: Yeah, for sure. It's definitely be highly cyclical. And to mitigate that risk, I think mitigating risk should be everyone's top priority, no matter what they're doing. And mitigating risk is something that I find is not talked about a lot. It's more like, Oh, yeah, how much money can I make this month? Or how much am I gonna make on this flip? And Oh, look at my cash out refi, I made all my capital back plus extra. Right? But uh, mitigating risk for us, it is highly cyclical. For sure, one hundred percent. And getting into this business—if uh, people do want to get into this business—that is something to be aware of. And to combat that, it's just finding markets that are cyclical against your other markets. So, for example, in Ontario, we are in high season right now. So, from May until September, all the cottages are booked. Everyone's paying five hundred to thousand dollars a night. But then, when it comes to winter time, you are trying to get someone in there to barely pay your mortgage for those six months. So what you do is you find another market that is hot in the winter time, wintertime that in Ontario. So for example, the market that we're in, in Arizona, it's high season from September until March. So then that's where you can combat it and make your cash flow more steady. Yeah, but it is 100% highly cyclical.
1: So that's interesting. So you're essentially t- taking like the approach of if I get a waterfront cottage and then I'm gonna get a ski hill cottage, like within the same kind of market. And from a portfolio perspective, you'll end up overall balanced out and in an overall highly flow position, right? So when you're scaling in the US, I just took a look at your Tercast Airbnb account here. You've got 13 listing lines here. It looks like they're kind of like within like the resort area, right? Maybe it's a resort, maybe it's not. Maybe these are just kind of communal pools. can't really tell, but- Yeah, communal pools, yeah. Gotcha. So from this perspective, like it still requires a decent amount of capital. Are you remote managing this? How do you go about building systems? How do you go about finding teams? Did you just go down to the U.S. and kind of camp out there for a little bit? Or how'd you go about starting this business?
2: Yeah, for sure. So it definitely does take capital and people are always like, oh, hey, how come you're going to spend that much on this business? You know, how how are you going to be sure it's going to work out? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea that it's going to work out. That's what business is. Like we have no idea. I could spend all that money and go open up a bubble tea shop in downtown Toronto. Do I know if it's gonna hit? I have no idea, but you know what? Let me try, right? And that's just the way to look at it versus like it's gonna be guaranteed. I think when people ask me those questions, like, how do you know? I don't. that's the whole honest truth. I just don't. But you know what? I'll try and put my eggs in the best position that I can. In regards to actually going down there. So my fiance and I thought about flying down to Arizona to manage at least the first few setups. But we didn't end up doing that. So we're managing everything remotely right now. But we did get connected with a fantastic property manager in Arizona, and that came through a referral through one of, uh, I guess, my colleague now. She's also a member of Aaron's group of the December month that I joined. And she has some properties down there, and she referred me her property manager down there. So he's been phenomenal. He does all our unit setups. He does video walkthroughs with me and my assistant almost every day send us photos. He also manages all our cleanings down there as well. So yeah, that's how we figured it out. And then building your SOPs or your procedures, you know, that just comes with time. Day by day, me and my assistant are figuring out, oh, if a guest messages us and they want to late checkout, how do we respond? Do we charge them? How long can we charge them till? How much do we charge them? I just said that. And when do we have to contact our cleaning company to go in there afterwards? Things like that. You just do it one-by-one. Okay.
0: One. Yeah. Very interesting. So I'm curious as to market selection on why you settled down in Arizona and also sort of your sales uh, pitch. You don't have to go word for word through it. And the reason being is, is because when we had, we had Karsten on this podcast, we also had Aaron on this podcast. I think it was a little bit different for them because they've had a portfolio in Canada. So they relied heavily on that fact and that sales pitch. What was your sort of unique proposition or was it just hammering the phones until you got someone to take a chance on you?
2: Yeah. So uh, to answer your first question, why Arizona? I honestly didn't even know Arizona was a state until like six months ago, to be honest with you. And the reason why I came on my radar is because Carson and Aaron are investing in Arizona. And I figure if my mentors are going to be in Arizona, there's got to be something there. They're spending X amount of dollars to be down there and X amount of uh, you know resources to figure out if it's a good market. Why do I need to reinvent the wheel? Let me just pedal along with them. So That's what I did. And that's how I figured out here. So obviously I still did my due diligence with the techniques and research that they showed me how to do, just to make sure that my specific areas that I'm looking for made sense. And then from there, sorry, what was the
0: second part of the question there, Austin? Um, Kind of the sales pitch. How did you get the leads and how did you convince someone to, to take a chance on you, given that this was one of your earlier sort of ventures into the Airbnb space?
2: Yeah, for sure. So I did have very, very minor experience prior to going down there and even prior to during the mentorship program with one listing out in Pickering, Ontario. And that is a strictly arbitrage deal where we're just renting it in front of the landlord, furnished it, and then re-renting it out on short-term platforms. So I did have a little bit of experience there, but pitching it down to investors or property managers or owners down in the States, it was just essentially just cold calling. And I'll say this on air exactly how I do it. So and this is the secret sauce, quote unquote, secret sauce. And If you are listening, I'm putting in air quotes right now. All it is, is you find out what your requirements are and what you want to offer to us. Because at the end of the day, we are a travel accommodation and a hospitality company. We're not a real estate firm. We're not a private equity firm. We're not a renovation company. That's what we are, right? So you have to think about it as an active business. From there, we make a list of what we want to offer guests. Do we want to offer them a communal pool? A private pool, in-suite laundry, stainless steel appliances. Location, location, location is very important. D.C. is very important, Arizona, because it gets really, really hot. Things like that. Then from there, you filter out and you go on to Zillow, or they have Realtor.com down in the States as well. Now you got all your filters and you figure out, okay, let me figure out one big circle of, let's say, I don't know, Phoenix, Arizona, go down there. And then you, now you have an entire list of people that you can call potentially. Right. So now you're on the phone and you just call them. And this is exactly how I say things to this. Hi, my name is Terry N. And I'm interested in leasing out some of your units. Then they'll say a couple of things. Right. So one of the things that they could say is, yeah, you know, which units are you looking for? What's your budget? Do you want to do walkthrough?" And I'll stop them right there. And I'll just tell them, I'm actually calling from a company. We are a hospitality and travel accommodation company. And we're looking at leasing out a few of your units all at one go. Are you open to releases? leases? Strictly from there, they'll either say yes or no, and then you just move on. And 80% of people will say no, and they're nice about it, but just get through the 80%. You have to make the calls, get to the 80%. And then that 20% that works out with you, then you can start going through the next steps. But that's essentially what I did. And then from there, how they got to trust me was, you, know, you have to learn the lingo, you have to be confident in what you're offering. And the way that I'm speaking right now, it, now it's a lot more natural because I've talked to a handful of property owners and stuff. But it just takes time, just like anything. Just practice one call at a time. Don't be in your head about it. Just pick a phone, call alone. And then eventually they'll feel that confidence kind of come through you on the phone. And then they'll be like, okay, you know what? This person seems like they know what they're doing. You know, they're also helping us guide us through. Okay. How do we set up a court release? How many units do they want? What terms and conditions? And that's it. And then as you're a consummate professional, they'll respect that. And that's how it worked out for us.
0: I like that. The secret sauce is literally just putting in the work. And I think people want to have everything perfect before they get into something. And it's the very same thing as getting into your first investment property. All the stars need to align for you to take action. It needs to be a perfect bird. It needs to be this. It needs to be that. Whereas it's all about just like taking small actionable steps, improving as you go along. And then sooner or later, you're going to walk a deal up. But it may not be in a week from now, it may not be two weeks from now, but you just got to be consistent with it. And that being said, I want to know, I'm just curious about, there's so many things I have questions on, but since we're on the topic of just speaking with the uh, landlord, what were some common pushbacks that you got that you have to address? For example, at any point where they're like, oh, you're Canadian, you don't have much experience. What sort of pushbacks did you have? And on the other side, what sort of pushbacks did you think that you would get? Maybe for one, like lack of experience, but it wasn't really that much of a big deal. Interesting.
2: I like that second question. So going to your first question, I also got to shout out the mentorship group between Aaron and Karsten. I actually did leverage their company as well because there were some property owners or landlords that did ask, Oh, hey, you know, do you have a website? You know, where's your U S footprint and all these things? So I did reach out to them and honestly, being part of that mentorship group has helped me so significantly in ways that the money that I spent is not even a thought anymore. Just being in that group and that network helped break my brain so much because I thought I was going to scale this company in Kitchener Waterloo before we went to the States. But talking to Aaron and Carson and talking to a couple other members that already were in the US before joining, they said, yeah, just go in the States. Like, you know, what, what's the issue? Let's talk about it. So, you know, shout out to them. So, common pushbacks from these people, honestly, they weren't as scary as I had thought. So, why don't I take that second question first? What did I think they were going to say? I thought they're going to say, you know, are you dumb? You know, we don't do corporate leases. Why are you calling us? Why do you want to rent from us? Like, is this a scam? Like, who wants to lease out five units at the same time? Those were the kind of things I had insecurities about being on the phone. But obviously, I had my scripts and objections and try to prep myself as much as I can to get these answers dealt with. But the actual pushbacks were like, oh, hey, you know, do you have a website that we can visit? What kind of experience do you have? can you show us any current listings that you have and do you have an EIN number? And for people that don't know what that is, that's an employer identification number for your corporation in the U S same thing as I guess your HSD number here for your
1: corporations. People actually ask for that though. Like I can't imagine anyone here going, Hey what's your, what's your corporation's HSD number? <laughs> what the fuck do you want that for?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well down there, they, they do ask for that because like really, yeah? it's a little, yeah, a little bit weird. Like they want to make sure that it's coming from, a business that's registered. I think that's what it was. Yeah, but that's mainly Yeah, It was just very just, you know, a little bit of due diligence questions just to make sure they kind of legit. You have a website, what kind of experience do you have? Can you show us your current listings? Stuff like that. Oh actually and, and another thing was um you know what can we expect from your guests? Right. And we just tell them, hey, you know what you can expect our guests to be respectful of the property. You know, we have we have a property manager that's boots on the ground in the area. And we have a very good vetting process for all our guests. So then all your long-term tenants won't be affected by their stakes. That was probably
1: them. And so the U.S. versus Canada, I'm sure the U.S. must have more merit, which is why you're there. But I'd be curious on a very like high level, what are the costs to set up some of these Airbnbs either like, because you had that Pickering one you said originally, right? So you probably yeah. have the Canadian numbers. What is like the return that you can expect? Like one year's cash flow maybe right in Canada versus in the U.S.? I would just be kind of curious about that apples to apple.
2: Um, yeah, it's gonna be tough to do apples to apples only because pickering it's a four bedroom, two and a half bath, single detached house and versus the units that we have in the states, which are mainly one bedroom. But I can give you numbers directly. So the four bedroom, two and a half bath pickering, we spent about like twenty, twenty five thousand dollars to furnish it and get it ready. And right now, in the slow month, we're probably profiting about like five hundred bucks a month. So that was from like We've got the lease in October. Bad. Yeah, it's not bad. You know, it's better than your regular long term rental. But, you know, it's not bad. And I can't knock it because that helped us through the slow month. And now with the bookings that we have now, we're probably projecting anywhere between like two to four thousand dollars in profit a month. So that's Damn. from <laughs> Yeah. So that's from May until August ish. That's the high season
1: right now. Yeah. And a basement sitting here that's just vacant. Uh yeah, you should you
2: should probably put that on a short term <laughs> rental platform, man. Yeah, we could talk about that after if you want. in <laughs> the US. And people can figure out the ROI from from the numbers that I just stated. And then on the US side, so let's take for example, like a one bedroom. This is one bedroom, one bath, about six hundred fifty square feet. It's in an apartment complex with about a hundred other units, a communal pool, communal play area, stuff like that, to kind of give the audience an idea of how it looks like. And this is in Phoenix, Arizona. Close to downtown, about like 10 minutes away. And to set it up, it costs about all the furniture, photos, you know, labor, everything was about 8,000 USD. So 10 grand, call it. Yeah. Yeah, 10 grand. And that's like from first month's rent, security deposit, furnishing, photos, labor, all that stuff together. Yeah. And right now, so we are in slow season in Phoenix from April until August ish and we're still profiting about 500 USD a year
0: That's awesome, that's awesome. And yeah. uh, what sort of expense line, just out of curiosity, does someone have to consider? Because uh, when we talk about profit, everyone knows what the revenue is. Usually it's how much money you're generating and from the actual occupancy and also the cleaning yeah. fees. What are the expenses that you have to consider when running these numbers?
2: Yeah, for sure. So these are expensive, if any real estate investors are listening out there, very similar to long-term rental portfolios. And very similar to underwriting your cash flow projections for a long term rental. And this kind of grinds my gears when I see stuff on social media of like, oh, hey, you know, you can go rent this downtown Toronto condo and make $500 in cash flow. And then they completely forgot about utilities, insurance, and everything. I'm like, yeah, you're like underwater on that. But it's the same. So, or very similar. So you have your rents, then you have your utilities, then you have your internet. And then from there, you would have your software fees because we have softwares for example like our pms software and then our pricing software so we got to account for that then you account for your vas which if you have VAs, which i do so you account for your va costs and that would be essentially the monthly cost
0: yeah okay awesome there's a lot of competitors i imagine in the states more so than in Ontario, Ontario, there's a lot of regulation, so on and so forth. But I imagine there's a lot of Airbnbs, if you were just, it's just an assumption, did it go up and, and search it in Arizona? What do you think makes you stand out from the other operators? Is it just because there's a huge amount of demand for short-term rentals there? Or are you doing things that are a little bit different than other operators aren't doing for your success?
2: Yeah. So specifically in Phoenix, Arizona, there's about 8,000 current rental listings right now short-term rental listings. So that's the stats. And that's insane in comparison to Ontario as a whole. So anyway, and that's only Phoenix, not all of Arizona. That's just Phoenix. So the market opportunity is a lot bigger in the cities. You know, they have 10x the populations, which means they have 10x the infrastructure or if not more, they have 10x the amount of attractions and, and all these good things, right? And they have better weather most of the year than than we do. That's in regards to I guess saturation or market competitors. There's just more market complete than in Canada. And then how do we stand out on top of that? There are things that we do from SEO touchpoints, to pricing strategies, to making sure that photos are professionally done, to making sure that you have trendy and yet durable furniture. It's things like that. It sounds very basic, but it's not a complex business. It's just, you just have to hit the basic points multiple times and just keep going and keep going. That's all. But that's how we stay
1: out That's interesting. So I'd like to kind of ask you a couple more questions on the entrepreneurship side, because I think like it's great. We had Carson on and then we had Aaron on and now we had you on. So we kind of covered multiple levels of Airbnb and SGR. It's great. I'm curious, because I feel like you're more in the entrepreneurship side and this is a venture that you're trying today and who knows if you'll be doing it in 10 years, but you're probably going to take it as far as you can, right? And True entrepreneurial style, right? But, you know, I, I'm just curious in this entrepreneurial journey, what's something that I guess you feel like people misinterpret or don't have the right opinion on or don't have the right perspective on? I guess what do people like? I don't know what the word is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, like, what is commonly kind of thrown around in the community that you might be like, hey, you know what? I, I, I that's
2: might. Trying
1: to cap. Just- like, that's yeah, cap. That's yeah. cap.
2: I would say, like, oh, yeah, you know, you can make $100,000 in 90 days, or, uh, you know, making 10 grand yeah. a month will change your life. I honestly think 10 grand a month will not change your life because most of these people are talking about gross revenue or yeah. gross profits, right? And that's honestly, that's cap. Like, you can get a job in Toronto, you can make more of that. So that's cap. And 100 grand in 90 days, I think people want to compress their timeframe so short. To kind of add on to what you're saying, Mayu, like, yeah, I don't know where we're going to be in 10 years. I know in three years, we're not going to be doing anything different. Five years, we're probably still going to be the same thing. Like, we are looking already, we're looking at different states and different countries. So, hopefully, in the next three to five years, we'll probably be in Europe uh, and in Asia as well. And that's kind of more of a lifestyle for me and my fiance. You know, I I have some common ground with with Austin. We both proposed to our significant others in Italy. So, you know, I have a soft spot for Italy. So, we are looking there. But yeah, I would say that's, that's what's capped. Timeframes and 10K a month will change
0: your life and a hmm And a big part of it as well, just to add on to that, like consistency of income as well. Some people are like, oh, I want to make this much a month. But if your business constantly fluctuates and you know it's not a consistent income stream, then that's something else that, that people don't consider, right? Like um, people just might be doing some, some one-off things to make money, but it's not really, like again, you're not really going to live off of that. And I guess that's one thing there. You've done a bunch of different things in real estate investing in general, right? You've done flipping, you've done BRRRRs, now now you're in the hospitality, Airbnb side. I guess maybe you've already answered this, but in case there is a different answer, maybe I'll ask you directly, like what is a misconception in the industry or field, I guess, real estate that you wanted to debunk.
2: I would say that cash flow is king. I kind of want to debunk that only specifically related to real estate. And specifically related to long-term real estate, because people like I, I, bought instead of a dream too. Like, don't get me wrong, I did. When I first started, I was like, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to hit a perfect bird, be unicorn. I'm going to get all my capital back in six months, make 200 grand on top, and then make two thousand dollars a month in my rents, net, net, net profit in my rents." You know, and obviously that didn't happen. So I would say in that specific space. I was sold a dream that was not true. And that's what I want to debunk. You know, the cash flow is great, but when a capital item comes up, for example, we recently had water damage at one of our duplexes in Hamilton. Uh, That was a cash call for like 12 grand. Okay. What happened to my $500 a month or $1,000 a month cash flow I've been getting for the last year went down the drain in a matter of weeks right? It's a great equity play. Don't get me wrong. That does give you a lot of advantages for the future to either get fee or to refinance and use that capital towards something else, either another investment or another business. But I want to debunk the fact that you know cash flow is king and cash flow is there in general when it comes to long-term rentals because it isn't. I totally
0: agree with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We're probably part of the problem. Right, I, I, yeah, I think yeah. a lot of us like cash flow investors have pushed the narrative for so long that it almost got kind of lost. Right. But I do think being cash flow negative is not a way to build up a portfolio either. Right. Cause it, that's right. also not scalable, but it's yeah. maybe like, it's kind of like the pipe dream, right? It's like, Oh, I'm going to cash for like $500 a month. i retire and quit my job, like blah, blah, blah. The people that I know that truly have cash flow, I feel like I'm owning their properties for like 10 to 15 years. Yeah. And rents have gone up so much and the mortgage has gone down so much over time. that, like in the long run, you probably could retire and get some truly like really good cash flow yeah. or you got to <laughs> be buying in like, I don't know, none of it or some shit like that. Like some really far, <laughs> by, far away place, right? Shout out to the one <laughs> that said none of it, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> uh, but you know, that, that's essentially what we'd have to be doing. Right. And I think, um, yeah, we're, we're definitely part of the problem, but,
0: <laughs> yeah, w- yeah, what I wanted to add on to that is like equity is truly what makes you rich over the long term in real estate and even in business in general, right? Like yeah, people yeah. are not there to maximize cash flow in businesses. A lot of exits in businesses, you look at private equity in these other companies, it's what you can sell it at, what you can exit at. And that's where you yeah. make the true chunk of cash, right? And you see yeah. all of these like tech companies that operate on negative cash flows, they're losing yeah. money. Obviously right uh. now, a little bit of turmoil. but there's a reason for that, right? They try to get first mover advantage into whatever market they enter. So you lose money to get that advantage, because when you're the market leader, you trade out like four or five times multiple, and when you're not a market leader, you trade out one or two. Like that's an equity play, right? Yeah. The equity, like that's what that's what business is in general. Like how much equity can you add into your business basically connected
1: in the future? No, I think it's a great episode, Terry. Um, I know we have to go, so right before we go, just two quick questions. One is what piece of advice do you have for a newer investor in today's market?
2: Uh, like newer real estate investor?
1: Let's just say a new, young person. <laughs> a new young person? about real estate. <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, yeah, definitely being in the business, like being in the business world has opened up my eyes a lot. To like true cash flow uh, can do it for your life. To a young person, I would say, you know, get around the right people. And get around things that interest you. Like you don't have to follow the status quo. Like if if you want to open up a restaurant, go open up a restaurant. If that's what your thing is, or if you want to open up an art gallery, you know, be around people that are at art events or be even around artists and gallery owners and stuff like that. Definitely, I know it's super cliche. I'm gonna say it anyways. Your network is your net worth. And maybe a better way to say that is you really absorb who you are around. So, for example, one of the things that one of my hobbies is I enjoy playing pool. I enjoy playing. I, I play every Monday night at a rec league, and just being around people that are infinitely better than me has made my game a lot better. And that's something that you know I can't. No one can take away from me. that's my own skill. There's no money attached to it. There's nothing attached to it. That's skill, you know, and that can be translated into anything in life. You know, be around people that you want to be like, and things that you enjoy too. If you're in it for the money, and I'll be honest, you know, right now we are building company for the money, but. If you're in it for something that you just naturally like, then things will be a lot easier for you, right? Yeah, that's what I would say.
1: Good shit, good shit. And the second is, where do you see your business in five years? You might have already answered this, but if you just want to touch on that quickly.
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're definitely going to be in other states in the US. We may stay in Canada, may not in regards to the business. And uh, we're definitely going to be exploring other countries, definitely Europe, specifically in Italy, and Indonesia, Asia, specifically Vietnam and the Philippines.
0: Awesome, a lot going on. Super excited to continue following your journey, Terry. Honestly, man, a lot of golden nuggets in this episode, and it's refreshing to hear someone who's who's done a little bit of everything, right? And throughout that journey, you're profitable in every venture you touch, but it just goes to show that you really need to resonate and believe in what you're doing and to trust the process because for you, flipping, burning, that didn't necessarily resonate with your long-term goals, and so you pivoted towards that. Something that's profitable doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right thing for you as an entrepreneur to do. Uh, people want to connect with you, chat with you, learn more about your journey. How could they best do so? Best
2: way to reach out to me is through Instagram. My handle is terry.ttn, that's spelled terr yt And our company's Instagram is homestays. That's T-E-R-R-A-C as in Charlie, A-S-A. H O M E S T A Y S, Terracotta Homestays. And the reason why Beautiful. I spell it out like that is because when I call people and landlords and stuff, they always ask me to spell things. So now that's just
0: natural <laughs> to me. It looks like he did that a million times. But yeah. for those who don't know how to type those things out, click on the link in the show notes below.
1: <laughs> and uh,
0: hope you guys enjoy this episode. Leave us a five star review. It helps us bring great guests to carry out. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.